Yeah, I mean, to say I spent some time there, I did a four-day trip, which scared the living daylights out of me is probably one of the dumbest things I've ever done. <laughs> I would never do it again. I would counsel anybody I know probably to never do it. But then, paradoxically, I'm so grateful that I saw it and experienced it because it's, you know, another example of... Uh, rivers which we all love and enjoy which was just mind-blowing just mind-blowing hello and thanks for joining today's episode is with one of the best kayakers you may have never heard of his self-induced kayak affliction has taken him all around the globe finding some of the best white water on the planet and he's here with me today to share some of his unique experiences. But first, today's episode is sponsored by Four Corners River Sports. To me, Four Corners is exactly what a paddling shop should be. It's staffed with dedicated river people who know the sport inside and out and are all about having fun and getting people outside. Four Corners River Sports is located in Durango, Colorado. They are a full service paddle sports retail and rental store. If you're looking to get out on the water, look no further than Four Corners River Sports. Call them at 970-259-3893 or visit their website at www.riversports.com. This episode is also sponsored by Taylor Barker with the Group Real Estate Steamboat. I've known and paddled with Taylor for years and he brings passion to everything he does. Steamboat Springs is a wonderful town with the Yampa River running right through it and has a vibrant and friendly boating community. If you're thinking about making a move to Steamboat, or purchasing a vacation home, be sure to get in touch with Taylor. He's happy to give you a lay of the land, the real estate market, and help you find the perfect property. You can reach him at 336-314-4353 or by email at taylor at brokerintheboat.com and you can find these links in the show notes. This podcast is being featured on paddlinglife.com Paddlinglife.com does a wonderful job of finding all the most interesting happenings in the world of paddling and bringing them straight to you in the form of news, interviews, articles, videos, and more. Check out paddlinglife.com. Now, what you've been waiting for, on to the show. Hello, and welcome to Tales from the Crips, a whitewater storytelling podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Cripps. For those who are not old timers in the world of whitewater kayaking, my guest today might be the oh, best Come on, age, age related never already. Come on. <laughs> no mercy on this podcast. <laughs> so I have a personal anecdote about my guest, Alex, today, because I met him a few years back on Clear Creek, which is just our little local Colorado Front Range run. Uh, it's near Golden. We were there after work. The flow is a respectable level. And he shows up and he's got this old dagger red line, if I recall correctly. I got a nod there. And that's a playboat circa late 90s or so. And you don't see them too often. No, and it's, it's not a playboat, but carry on. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> it would be a playboat by today's creek boat standards. Right. <laughs> Um, but, uh, it's, you know, maybe a little undergun for the average person on this, this class four or five section at the level, but reasonable. And when we got on the water, I saw him getting out there and surfing every little wave that was hard to reach and like moving around the river with 
a lot of grace that you don't usually witness. And so I, I pulled into an eddy at one point with my friend Cruz and I said, I said, hey, Cruz, that Alex guy, he sure looks like he knows what he's doing. And Cruz kind of chuckled and he said, yeah, you know, when I was a kid, I had a poster of that guy hanging on the wall in my bedroom. <laughs> and we both kind of laughed and then he went on to explain that, you know, like that Alex was uh, part of the crew that was out on the Zambezi River when Steve Fisher was out there and they were figuring out, you know, all these new playboat moves and things that you could and couldn't do in a kayak. And it was kind of a important time in, in whitewater history. And uh, Alex Sense, is, as you could guess, he's traveled all around the world, ran all kinds of iconic rivers and in whitewater kayaking. And uh, he's even produced a number of seminal whitewater kayaking videos in the, I think, early 2000s. Uh, Wicked Liquid, among others, um, that featured, you know, showcased a lot of the things that were going on in the sport at the time, which was pretty cool. So all these years later, sorry, a few years later, <laughs> Alex is, uh, he's still out there having fun. He's still out there kayaking and he's agreed to sit down with me today to share some of his adventures. So Alex Nix, thanks for coming and welcome to the show. Howdy. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, I just want to say Cruz's picture of me on his wall was probably next to a poster of uh, Duran Duran or something like that. Just to put it in context. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think Cruz is that old. Come on. <laughs> no, thank you for having me. Yeah. Well, this is awesome. So um, I'm first just going to start out with the elephant in the room because, you know, when I, when I hear your name come up, you would think that it would be about the Zambezi or some cool expedition that you've done, but but more often than not, it's about something different. So I've got a, a special guest host here, my daughter Kate, who is going to ask you a question because it happens to be a passion of hers. Hi, Kate. Come over here to the microphone. Hi, Alex. I hear that we share a common trait. When I went camping with my dad last summer, we did a hike near Breckenridge, and I did it barefoot. Everybody on the trail kept asking me, where are your shoes? As if there was something wrong with me. But I like hiking barefoot. What's wrong with that? I heard that you also like to be barefoot, and not just when kayaking easy rivers, but also in major expeditions. I hear that you did the Middle Kings, which requires more than 10 miles of hiking, with a loaded boat over a mountain pass, with only a pair of sandals with you for when things got rough. Is that true? And how did you <laughs> get hiking barefooted? And is it safe? Well, it is kind of true. Jesus wears sandals. I was in flip-flops. But uh, great job on the question, so thank you. Um, yeah, I, you want me to talk about why I'm barefoot most of the time? Of course. Um, we've so, we've got to get this out of the way. <laughs> I mean, it, it looks pretty eccentric to people that are gear hungry, but there's a pretty rational reason behind it. The first one is I'm six foot two, six foot three, and the older playboats, which were very slicey on the end, there was just no room for my uh, feet in those boats with shoes, so I learned to paddle without them. And then the biggest one is being a, a video boater on the Zambezi, you can't wear shoes video boating there because the water um, goes through this huge vertical cycle over the year, and the low water run, which we're talking, you know, 10,000 CFS plus, when you're walking over the rocks, they've generally been brushed and polished at high water for about mm. six months of the season for millennia yeah. and so those basalt rocks are super slippery so you know i learned quite quickly wearing shoes you just slip up and bash yourself and you, you damage camera gear as well doing that so i imagine there were no good rubber shoes no 510s at the time that, uh, not not really and it's just you're under a little bit of pressure with the raft trips they don't want to wait for you so you don't have time to put shoes on so you kind of get out scuttle go and find your spot film and run back again and i think it's a skill that 
isn't bad actually you learn to feel the ground under you a little bit and when you're on less um solid terrain when stuff can give you you sense when it's going to move or shift mm. so your feet toughen up i'm you know i'm not anti wearing shoes it just worked <laughs> for me <laughs> The safety, the safety gurus out there, you know, might might take issue with you. What, what do you what's the, your the rebuttal? Safety. The safety gurus, the people that that yeah, say, yeah. you know, like shoes, good footwear are part of the uh, essentials for kayak safety. What, what's your yeah, rebuttal? I, my rebuttal to them would be, if that works for you, good for you, mate. <laughs> Carry on. Um, you know, we, we had this saying when I was younger: all gear, no idea. There's an element of truth to it. You don't have to have all the gear to be uh, super effective on the river. Hmm. You just got to have the right gear. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think that uh, do you think that anyone has this power? I mean, a lot of people a lot of people would say hiking through something like the Middle Kings with only a pair of sandals or flip flops would be uh, like impossible for for an average person. Do you think that you're, you're unique, or do you think that you've just done it enough that any if anyone did the same thing, they could do that? Um, I, I think I'm just cussed enough. I've had enough experience. I think anybody could do it. Part of the fact as well is the Kings is a it's a long multi-day self-support, right? So you've only got so much room. Um, so <laughs> talk, <laughs> talk about a weight weenie. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. That's awesome. <laughs> but it, again, I've, I, I, I just got into that habit from the Zambezi of having, you know, to hop out quickly for a scout, you pull your boat up, you're, you don't have to. Yeah, that makes a lot yeah. of sense. And yeah. cold isn't an issue out there. No, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Not in California either, really. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, um, so, you know, I've, I've only met you once, twice, maybe, you know, just briefly. And so I, 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 don't, I hope I, don't, I wasn't rude to you. Well, you know, <laughs> I, invited, I invited you here in spite of it. So, <laughs> but, uh, I don't know. I don't know much about your background. I think I'd love to hear, you know, you've obviously dedicated a good part of your life to paddling and, you know, how did, how did you get into the sport? Yeah. It's a disease for me or has been a disease for sure. Um, yeah. I mean, I guess it's kind of unusual by North America standards, but in the UK, there's a, there's quite a lot of opportunity to kayak. I and mean, we produce quite a few great kayakers, I think. Mm-hmm. But um, for me, I was lucky enough to go to a high school where we had a kayak instructor. Oh, really? So beyond those very traditional sports of rugby, cricket and hockey, um, there was an opportunity to kayak in the later years and for some reason it clicked for me I didn't like the the team sports I felt like I was waiting for the ball to be passed to me too much <laughs> of the time and when you're in the kayak you're driving it and playing with it all the time and it just sort of clicked straight away hmm. yeah and then where did it where did it transition from just uh, something you did in high school to something that was uh, more of an obsession or a lifestyle or a disease, um, as you call it. <laughs> yeah. um, affliction. Uh, so my, my parents bought me a kayak one Christmas, and I did live on a farm that had a river going through the farm. And I had a friend whose parents bought him a kayak who lived downstream, and I had a friend whose parents bought him a kayak who lived upstream. And we used to <laughs> converge at a low-head dam and basically try and drown each other and kill each other and <laughs> dare each other to do the dumbest things on this low-head dam as teenagers. I uh, left uh, left home went to university there was an active canoe club there kayaking in wales and scotland and the thames weirs you probably don't know of but they're they're quite they're sort of relatively well respected as good play spots in europe and regularly hold rodeo competitions on places like hurley um so i competed there and got a degree in geology and 
afterwards, all I wanted to do was just travel and kayak, travel and kayak. So, I mean, it, it developed and formed at that stage. And like a lot of Europeans do, either pre-university or post-university, they'll do a round-the-world trip. And I picked as many mountain zones as I could to go to over about six to 12 months. Hmm. Very cool. Yeah. So the this is a good transition then into kind of the next thing I think would be great to talk about, as you already alluded to, you spent a lot of time in the Zambezi, and this was not just any time in the Zambezi, this was a unique time. Steve Fisher was there. It was kind of a, an important moment, I think, in kind of kayaking in terms of progression. Um, how did you... There's like, a lot in that question, actually, that, the, for me to pick up on. So it was as the boats were evolving as well. I mean, the paddlers were coming in and helping develop move, the moves, but the boats were evolving. So clearly, Steve, everybody knows quite well. He's had great presence and done some amazing stuff. But there's a lot of people that came before him that are quite important to mention that are involved in that transition of boats. So... Um, Yep. To the lesser extent, but was an equally fantastic paddler, was Nico Chassing, the French paddler. Mm. And he was on the Zambezi before I arrived there. And I was on the Zambezi before Fisher arrived there. Mm. And we sort of ended up competing quite strongly against each other. But I, I think it's really important to mention other paddlers like Colin Hill, Chill, and particularly Oliver Foyette, who is a French paddler, um, hilarious, uh, slightly eccentric, and demented with fiberglass. So he was one <laughs> of the first kayakers to chop down a slalom boat and bring that out to the Zambezi. And that was the first sort of sub seven foot, six and a half foot boat that had been on there. Really? And was ultimately, and Corin will hate this, but ultimately what uh, influenced Corin Addison into chopping down the short boats that came and he sort of, hmm. yeah, introduced to a, a larger market. Interesting. Yeah. No, that, that's great. That's yeah. history I didn't know anything about. Yeah. And I mean, Oli, Oli Fiat was so... I mean, maybe he'd smelled too much fiberglass glue and fumes, but he used to make his own fiberglass framed glasses what? as well as his own helmets. I mean, he was just a machine with that stuff. And he was pushing, bending the boats in different directions and, you know, using flatter hulls. So what, what first brought you out to the Zambezi? So again, post-university, I did a round-the-world trip. I kayaked in um, Canada, New Zealand, and Nepal. And while I was in New Zealand, I met this shaggy Chewbacca looking like a uh, lookalike uh, from South Africa called Stan Ricketts. And he had just finished his job um, as a video boater on the Zambezi and his space was going free. And I'm like, uh, do you mind? <laughs> and so he, he set me up with a contact for the Zambezi. And this was back in 1994, I believe. Okay. And so to get in contact with these guys, I had to hike half a mile from the campsite where I was in New Zealand, take about a kilo of Kiwi dollars with me and go to a payphone and call Zimbabwe and just keep feeding these coins <laughs> in. And I eventually got somebody and they said, yeah, send us a fax. And I took Stan's job and ended up on the Zambezi. And I'm glad I did. How many years were you there? This was a recurring gig, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, so... I did three years in Zimbabwe on the Zimbabwean side in Victoria Falls and then two years on the Zambian side um, in Livingston. So it's interesting, you know, we, we had this sort of core interest, this love of paddling on the river, but always kayaking when you follow it takes you to these most incredible 
interesting and incredible places that you probably you wouldn't choose to go to otherwise if it wasn't for your kayaking yeah and so because of that i've had this opportunity to see you know african politics in action so my first three years in zimbabwe i absolutely loved i adore zimbabwe the people are fantastic but it was as Mugabe or Robert Mugabe, the dictator, was becoming more and more unhinged. Mm. Um, um, but one of his policies was no work permits for foreigners. So we were all kicked out of the country at the end of our third year. Mm. Um, Zambia was slightly different. So we just moved across the river and mm. ran trips from there. But, you know, you, you learn about different parts of the world that you just wouldn't otherwise see or experience. Yeah. That's definitely one of the attractions yeah. that I never, never occurred to me when I started paddling, but very quickly became apparent once you start traveling to, to especially out of the country and discover yeah, like all of a sudden, instead of you looking around at other people and, you know, trying to see what's going on, people are actually looking at you and yeah. saying, what are these guys doing? And it's, I think it's a different way to experience a place. Yeah, yeah. for sure. Well, what was the kind of, what was the state of the world of kayaking when you first arrived there i mean what was what was when when you talked about playboating when you talked about creeks and river running kind of what was the state of the sport at, at yeah, that it's quite point? interesting i mean I, w- I would definitely have a, a a sort of anglo perspective so you know sean baker was the the guy that was doing the extreme stuff um, a lot of the guys that i looked up to and aspired to be were the the nepali explorers so some of the british guys like Pete Knowles and Dave Manby, who had done a lot of the Himalayan uh, kayaking. But it was changing. And I think, you know, there was an industry that was beginning to grow that was viable. And so boats were being um, uh, designed and evolved each year and were changing. And competition was beginning to evolve as well and have, have more input to it. So when I first arrived on the Zambezi, I had a piranha stunt bat, which I think is maybe seven and a half feet long. Okay. Um, it was considered a playboat. And the person that picked me up from the airport said, that's far too short. You can't paddle that on the river. I'm like, <laughs> I'm like yeah. People who tell me what to do don't, don't come off well, unfortunately. <laughs> but the evolution was starting in terms yeah, of playboat Yeah, for sure, design. for sure. Yeah. And again, that contribution by Oli Fiat by chopping boats down and making them, you know, the length of your feet was a huge part of that. Yeah. And that was happening while I was there. Corin was doing a lot of stuff as well. And Nico was demoing some of his quirkier designs, which were, you know, they were out there. He was, was doing really interesting, really cutting edge stuff. Hmm. Do you have any uh, Do you have any stories from that time that kind of epitomize some of the the characters or things that were going on in the sport? After a beer, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, the Zambezi. Well, I, I was there because I love whitewater kayaking and you know love doing hard kayaking, and it was the same for Nico and and Steve and for a bunch of other paddlers. But there were a lot of people. It, it, our ability to be there as a kayaker was based around this rafting industry. So we were either making our, our income as a video kayaker or a safety boater. So it was secondary to this in crazy, crazy rafting trip where you see the river do things to rafts that you would never see anywhere else in the world, you know? Americans call a tube stand where it flips edge over edge. We call yeah. a tube stand where it flips on the vertical plane so the boat will rise 16 feet out of the water and then flick people on the top end back into the upstream rapid and that would happen on a daily occurrence and so as a video boater 
I mean, it was. I hope they had a good waiver that you had to sign. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it might have been written in African. I don't know <laughs> for what it was worth. But yeah, I mean, we were young and dumb and enjoying being on just one of the most beautiful, insane, forgiving rivers on the planet. Yeah. Yeah. I saw, uh, I remember. I don't remember how many, how long ago that was. Maybe it's probably ten plus years ago, right? There was that uh, uh, Scott Lindgren video, The Black Book, that that was kind of a little biopic on Steve Fisher. But a big part of that was obviously the Zambezi stuff. And I was I was pretty captivated at the time by the images I, I saw of that, especially you know the Minus Rapids and, and that place. Were people running the Minus Rapids at the time when when you were there? Yeah, I think there was a group that went in in my first year and did the first descent of it i think nico yeah. chassing again was on that that was the first year yeah yeah pretty much um I th- it's one of those funny things i mean it's right there in front of you you put in below it every day right and it's spectacular i mean huge volume class five with victoria falls dropping 700 feet right behind it but then to your left you've got some of the best play waves in the world so people just kept turning left and going down there and didn't really mm. feel the need to go up to the minus rapids yeah um, so I, I think that was about the first time they were run. Was it, uh, I mean, were there, were there a lot of close calls at that time when people were kind of pushing some of those limits probably pushing flow levels too of what, what could, lines get run? Yeah, absolutely. So that's one of the most magnificent things that I don't think people understand about the Zambezi. They obviously aware that it's a huge river. I don't think people are aware of this insane vertical cycle on the river. So you're talking uh, a 4,000-kilometer river. You're about halfway through it there at Victoria Falls, uh, approximately 2,000K, give or, give or take. Um, it, it's wide. It'll be, you know, I don't know, about 100 feet wide. But it'll go for a vertical cycle in that canyon of up to or maybe more 8 meters Hmm. over the season so at the beginning of the season you can be paddling on this huge volume river next to a house-sized rock but as the season progresses you'll see it become this insane pour over Hmm. that you will want to avoid then you'll want to booth and then it'll become a huge hole and then as the river comes up even more it'll push out into a beautiful green wave and then towards the end of the season it can be gone and you can be paddling over it Hmm. It's amazing. And, yeah, and I, th- I think what happened was, you know, the industry was developing, video kayakers were sticking around, and people were running it in the closed season. Um, and it it isn't technically difficult, but it is. It's like an ocean. I mean, it's, it is heaving hundreds of feet across the channel from for miles. It's amazing. Yeah, very cool. Uh, yeah, it reminds me of I've never I've never paddled out there, but I'd I'd like to, especially before the dams come in and kind of ruin a sounds like a good part of it yeah it would be a tragedy it would be an absolute tragedy we we hope that africa reliably can snatch defeat from the jaws of victory and mess it up somehow but yeah, it's it's very tempting damning projects especially in more corruptible nations where the person signing the document over from the loan can take a backhander and let everybody else deal with it later sure yeah, yeah. it's unfortunate um all right well I, you, you can you can say you can say no comment to this, but just just because we're on oh just because we're on the subject, you know, do you have, do you have any comment on the the Dreamline fiasco and the Steve Fisher project that uh, fell fell through? Uh, 
it's not that I don't have no comment. I just didn't really follow it, and I don't know the the machinations of it. So you, yeah, you haven't been a part of any of that. I, I was nothing to do with that at all. Yeah. What do you do? You, does it does it ring? No, knowing Steve, does does any of that uh, that that surpri- definite, surprise you or not surprise you? That's a definite no comment. Okay, <laughs> fair enough. All right. Well, um, sticking in Africa, but, yeah. but moving on. You, you, I, I, I don't, I don't even know much about this, so you'll have to kind of guide me. But uh, you spent some time at Murchison Falls, which is just a, a famous section of whitewater, a spe- spectacularly difficult section of whitewater. Yeah, I'm going to say I spent some time there. I did a four day trip, which scared the living daylights out of me. Is probably okay. one of the dumbest things I've ever done. <laughs> I would never do it again. I would counsel anybody I know probably to never do it. But then paradoxically, I'm so grateful that I saw it and experienced it because it's, you know, another example of uh, rivers, which we all love and enjoy, which was just mind blowing, mm. just mind blowing. So talk a little bit about the significance. Well, where, where is it? What river is it on? What's kind of the significance of the area? Yeah, yeah. so um, the, the Nile comes out into the Mediterranean in Egypt. But as you follow it back upstream, it splits. And you have the Blue Nile that is sourced in Ethiopia and comes out to Khartoum. And then you have the White Nile that starts at Lake Victoria in Uganda and comes down through uh, southern Sudan and meets the Blue Nile in Khartoum. Now, at its source, the Blue Nile is bigger. No, I've got that wrong. Sorry. Um, The White Nile is much, much bigger than the Blue Nile. Okay. But it goes into this huge swamp called the Sud, the size of France in southern Sudan, and it evaporates most of it and it goes out into the Congo. And so when the White Nile and the Blue Nile meet in Khartoum, the Blue Nile is actually bigger. But upstream of that swamp, um, up until recently and a lot of damming projects, it was very famous for the Bujigali Falls section, which made the Zambezi look small. Mm-hmm. And so that was kind of a, uh, it became a very famous sort of uh, destination kayaking spot because it was logistically easy. The white water was incredible. Mm. Um, and, you know, the Uganda's a fabulous African experience. The Ugandans are awesome people. Mm. And as a legacy of African politics, again, Idi Amin, I think, had dropped a lot of bodies of people he hadn't taken kindly to in the river. Um, and it had, uh, it had been good for the crocodiles, but they'd had to clear them out because of that. And I think th- there's all sorts of stories about helicopter gunships killing crocodiles, about people killing crocodiles. Uh-huh. But it's a sort of... Uh, unusual to have a big river in Africa with no crocodiles in it. And so that section has very, very few crocodiles. So that's a great destination uh, kayaking spot that has sadly been mostly destroyed by dams. Mm. However, if you go downstream um, several hundred kilometers, there's a section in a national park called Murchison Falls. And it's called Murchison Falls because it has the entire Nile goes through about a 20-foot gap and drops about 600 feet. And the takeout is just above that. Um, And so you do a four-day trip down through to that. Um, When I I was there, on the right-hand side of the bank, the river was controlled by the Lord's Resistance Army, which is uh, a lunatic fringe... uh, separatist movement in Uganda who, who were dangerous and actually got involved with another river expedition, shot somebody right. on a later expedition. 
Um, and then it's in a national park. And so every eddy, there's nobody there to hunt crocodiles or hippos. So every eddy without exception has a hippo or crocodile in it. Great. Yeah. Okay. So you, you would normally run a mile from that. But I'd seen, I'd seen the white water from the air flying out commercially one year. I'm like, I mean, my jaw just dropped. I mean, I'm running up the plane, looking out the window, leaning over people's laps just to try to get the best view of it. And say, so it looks good to go from there. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I had South African friends who had done the first full source to sea on the Nile, 6,700 kilometers, I think. It took them four months. Huh. And they went through that section and they said, you know, by far and away the most spectacular whitewater on the entire river but hmm. that they'd ever seen and so hmm. yeah we that's, we had a go at it quite a statement yeah yeah, yeah mind-boggling mind-boggling i mean really um again it's stuff that makes the zambezi look small you put in below you know a a a, a a cataract that's probably a vertical drop of about 50 to 100 feet that splits into three or four channels um, and we put him below that and we took a raft as support with the late and great Hendrik Kutsia, yeah. um, who we lost on expedition with Ben Stooksbury yes. and his very close buddy, Pete Meredith, who had been a friend of mine rafting on the Zambezi okay. and then a, a female guy, Jane Dicey. And then we went with Tyler Brad and I'm trying to think who else we had on the river, but there was a a small gang of us, and the plan was to run the white water. Um, Seth, uh, let me come back. But the, the plan was to, you know, run the white water and jump on the raft in the pools mm. and, and sort of theoretically be safe there. Does that, does that work? Well, we're here. <laughs> <laughs> but was it by luck? or? <laughs> but you, you only have to Google stuff, and I think you can find crocodiles coming up to the boats. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, definitely a little bit of luck, a little bit of judgment. Um, but we had an oar frame on a 16-foot raft. They broke. They had two oars and a spare oar. They broke two oars within the first three miles. So then they had to paddle boat it from there. Huh. So that added an element of excitement to it. Um, I mean, it's, it's hard to get across without showing pictures of this stuff. But you're talking about waves that run, again, kind of Zambezi volume, Two, three hundred feet across the river. Huh. That's mind blowing. I can't yeah. even imagine that. Yeah. Um, and then, did you did you did you feel at that point that you had some capability to do that, having spent a lot of time in big water in in Africa? Yeah, I mean, this was, was a long. Just, this was yeah. sort of three years probably after I finished on Zambezi, so I was pretty competent at that stage. Yeah. So the the white water wasn't. I mean, that was a reasonable decision, I think. Okay. Um, the wildlife is a, that, that a misnomer. I think a, a great story that highlights it, we got to one of the last rapids above Murchison Falls. It was like a 15-foot shelf that came out from the bank. Pretty easy run-in and then sort of went out into a big wave train afterwards. And as we got there to scout it, there was an eddy below on the left, below us. And these hippos started rising out of the eddy just to check out who we were and then they started swimming into the wave train to get away from us into the center of the river so they're kind of swimming across this class four five wave train to get away from us and then wow. one of the hippos stopped on a rock in the middle of the river with this water billowing up over himself took a look at us and then just carried swimming across again amazing so yeah i mean they, they, they've evolved to be in the white water there basically that's so, incredible our, our 
uh, you know, safety aspect of being in the white water that we had in our mind was false. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right, so moving on, um, you mentioned to me that, that you did an expedition in Iran, which, or I think Iran, I, I once worked with someone, he got very angry at me. Iran. But I said, Iran. Iran. <laughs> Iran. Iran. There you go. From, from the, someone who's been there. So, yeah, I never, I mean, I, I know there's mountains in that country, um, but I certainly have never heard of anybody kayaking there. So how did this trip come together? So always a story, right? So um, again, one of the guys I mentioned earlier, this English character, Dave Mamby, who was um, a sort of prodigy might be too strong a word, but he, he was uh, a paddler in the 70s, 80s that did I think I think it was the first ascent of the Dude Cozy, which is the river off Everest. Oh, really? he, he was certainly well known for a lot of the descents he'd done in Himalayas. So he, he was kind of an icon in the background there. Um, and a friend of mine, Deb Pinnegar, was very good friends of his, who a former ladies world champion, British British team kayaker. Mm. And they they were working in eastern Turkey. And Dave was running trips on the Choru River, which I think now sadly is dammed as well. So the Choru in eastern Turkey. And um, it, once his season had finished there, eastern Turkey is just a drive across the border into Iran. Hmm. And so, you know, most kayakers, they'll do a river a couple of times, but they'll start looking at maps and seeing what's around the corner. Yeah. And I, I don't know what led him to go into Iran, um, but he did this river, the Bakhtiaria. Um, which was a nine-day self-support trip that oh, they wow. did. And he came out of that saying it was one of the best river trips he'd ever done. Really? And through my contact with Deb, I got invited on the trip they wanted to do the year afterwards, possibly because he wanted some footage of it as well. And it was. It's up there with one of the most spectacular river trips I've ever done. <laughs> and, and, of course, again, folded in with that travel cultural experience around sure. getting to the river which you know most people think you're you're insane actually but it was a it was a great experience what time period was this so this was just as daniel pearl the journalist had been beheaded during oh, the iraq war perfect timing yeah so things were kind of heating up a little bit and i had misgivings about the trip but i thought you know i go to eastern turkey and if people are throwing stones at us and telling us to go home then i'll go home but it's just not the way it works in an Islamic country generally, which is what most of the people will tell you about um, the Indus. I mean, their mm. the travel experiences and their stories are just yeah. they're, they're overwhelming. Yeah. Well, that's exactly where I was going with it. Yeah. yeah. What, what are the logistics of getting to the river? To the river? So um, if you include going to the Iranian embassy twice in London to get vetted and get your visa and then driving from... Uh, Eastern Turkey to the river and then sort of wait uh, uh, to the border and then waiting about eight hours at the border for them to check everything out again. Um, we, we took Dave Manby's van that he used for his rafting operations and we drove four or five of us across the border and, mm. and drove down to a little town in uh, the southwest called Sepadasht. And if you imagine Iran as an inverted triangle of mountain ranges with an elevated desert in the middle, we were in the southwest, so the most left-hand side of that inverted triangle are the Zagros Mountains, okay. which have you know been pushed up by Red Sea geological movements. Huh. And uh, like, what was the what's the 
I mean, what's the climate like? What's the environment like there? Is it is it just pure snowmelt? I, I picture that country as being quite dry, so I can't imagine there's any tropical places in there. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you're spot on there. It, it is very dry. Um, there, there are ski resorts north of Tehran. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think people know that. Um, so they, they get very good snow, basically, in the winter, and most of this will be groundwater and s- snow melt, yeah. So otherwise yeah. it's pretty it's pretty arid, though, where the, the river is starting. And, very. Yeah. It's, like, it's like paddling in the southwest. <laughs> yeah. Is it what, what kind of volume rivers? Or, or what? So we, we did three in the six weeks we were there. Um, I, I was, you know... Uh, I'm trying to remember the name of the first one we did, but they were medium volume, so about, I don't know, three, four thousand CFS, and then we did a creek at the end of it, which was probably 500 CFS. Okay, yeah. yeah. And what, so what kind of grades are we talking about? Um, creek was class five. Uh, class class four, generally. There was some class five, some portages that were possible to run on it. So, you know... Uh, it was an expedition, so we weren't going there for the craziest white water. There was some aspect of that to it, but it was about, yeah. about the journey more than the white water. Did you have any kind of beta on these going in besides looking at topo maps? Well, other than this or? one run that Dave had done before, the Bakhtiaria, okay. um, we, we knew about that run. Yeah. And that was always his pitch for the story, that he, it was the first descent for them. And it was very difficult for them because it, it pinches off into these vertical walled canyons yeah. that are, are very narrow, and it keeps doing that. Hmm. So they never knew whether these these canyons were going to end in Killafu Fang Falls and that was going to be the end of them but they, they made it through this nine day trip and took us back but it was spectacular you know hmm. how many do you have in nine days do you have any sense of what how many miles you covered uh, I'd be a total guesstimate I'm, I'm guessing about 80 80 90 miles I don't okay. know yeah so you're making you're making yeah. reasonable miles each day yeah day. yeah yeah. yeah, slow down. There's a couple of days with big portages where you recover much, much less. So yeah, okay. on, on average, something like that. Yeah. What did you see seeing that the, as a sec, uh, second descent, I assume, was when you went down that river? Yeah. 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 Wait, wait. First time I've been there, so it was the first descent for me. Would you have Would you have wanted to do the first descent or were there a lot of like actual... You had, had to roll the dice on some some of the gorges you went into. Yeah, I mean, you would have been scrambling around for a long time. I, I'm just really grateful that I got to see it. I don't really, yeah. don't really mind whether I was first or last there. Because sadly, some of that has been damned as well now, I think. It's oh, gone. really? Yeah. But I think uh, the whole Iranian experience is sort of worth commenting on as well because it's so yeah. fabulous. You know, there is this Islamic tenet to treat guests like you or treat travelers as guests like you would treat yourself. And so we stayed with a little guy uh, in, in Sepidash and, you know, we went into his house and he said, this is my house, you stay here, I give you food, I treat you like my guest. We, we didn't buy any food while we were staying at his house and he wouldn't allow us to either. Did you have a translator with you on this trip? Uh, Dave, so uh, that southwestern portion of Iran eclipses some of the Kurdish homeland that sort of is split by... Um, Turkey and Iraq, and Mambi speaks Kurdish, fortunately. Really? Yeah. Wow. Um, but 
it's former English colony, so there is a legacy of English there oh, as well, so and a lot of speak, a lot of people speak. Oh, very, really? Very a lot good, of people very do. good English. Really? Yeah, hmm. I'd say more than Japan, actually. That's surprisingly, surprising. yeah, that surprises me a lot. Yeah. Um, but w- one of my one of the stories I love the most is you know, Sepadashed. I'm a dirt bag kayaker in the middle of nowhere. I'll go and get a haircut. It'll be a couple of bucks, so I don't have to spend the same on it. You know, ten times as much when I come home. <laughs> and I wandered into this little barber in Sepadashed, and. Uh, the barber was sat in the back and his mate was reading the paper in the chair where people get their hair cut. And um, he, he welcomes me in and his mate goes off and he asks me what kind of haircut I want. We start off and his mate goes off and tells everybody in the village that there's an Englishman in the town. And so by the time he's finished cutting my hair, there's 40 people in this barber shop asking me about uh, Tony Blair, George Bush, <laughs> the war in Iraq, no what I think about it, because they don't have access to this information. So yeah. they wanted to know that. And it, you know, they wanted to cut through all the censorship that exists in the country. For sure, for sure. I mean, I was an alternative source for them. And then come the end of it, you know, I asked the guy, how much can I pay for the haircut? And he says, no, you're a guest in my country. You don't pay. Whoa. Which was humbling. Amazing. And then just to follow that up at the end of the trip, like six weeks later, I thought I'd go and get a cheap haircut. I can pay him. And then at least we're square on this. And same thing. His mate's reading the paper in the barber's chair. He's like picking his nails at the back. Welcome back. How are you? How is Iran? How is Iran? And uh, his mate disappears. Everybody comes in. They want to know, how was Iran? Do you love Iran? Do you love Iran? And, you know, we, we had a fabulous time talking about the trips and they were fascinating. And we come to the end of the haircut and I go to the guy like, how much are you? He goes, no, you're a guest in my country. You don't pay. Incredible. Yeah. yeah. Hum- humbling, actually, I think. Yeah. 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 That's a good way to put it. Humbling. Yeah. 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 What, was, what was the thing that surprised you most about being immersed in that culture for a little bit? Um, I think that's quite interesting, actually, because uh, got to learn to read between the lines of international reporting. Because what we see from Iran today is, is certainly hap- happening, but it's filtered by agendas, and there's a lot of really good people on the ground just trying to live their lives and get on with it, like, like there are in a lot of countries. Yeah, yeah, I hear that so much. Yeah. I mean, even just our neighbor to the south, right? You hear so many things about Mexico. Yeah. But people's experience there just yeah. tends to be good people and right. beautiful right. places. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's super interesting. Would you ever go back there, do you think? I was thinking about that the other day, actually. Right? Um, and I'd have to cut through what I'm reading about Iran right now. I mean, it's it's difficult. Um, I think I would, yeah. We're back with Tales from the Crips with Kevin Cripps and his daughter, Katie, who's just about to ask me a question. I heard that you did a first descent in Laos. Were you barefoot? Where did you hear that? I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> uh, it is highly likely that I was barefoot. Uh, it's, it's most likely. I mean, it's warm, um, big water. I, I was almost certainly in a little slicey playboat, which was made of uh, 1960s plastic, probably. <laughs> so, yeah, I, w- I was barefoot. All, all the criteria are there for barefoot. Right, right. Exactly. Aren't you worried about stepping on poisonous things? or? Yeah, I mean, I worry about more other stuff. I mean, I was just talking to you now. I just came back from the Embudo. I was barefoot there. But of course. I, when I got back, my, my partner was telling me she was reading about rattlesnakes there. And that was something that had never occurred to me, really. I was too worried about the, uh, the rapids. <laughs> Ignorance is bliss, huh? Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, so the the Mekong River was yep. was your destination in Laos? Yep. So I was there with a, a solid bunch of characters for a kayaking competition that was uh, sponsored by Thai Airways. 
And they had one segment in northern Thailand which had the most boring white water but the greatest food. And then the second section was in Indonesia on the Asahan River coming out of the jungle there, which actually had quite fantastic white water, big volume in the jungle, but terrible food. Um, but the guy who organized it had pointed out to us that there was this section on the Mekong on the border with Cambodia that, that could be worth a little bit of a look. And so we went across with old gang buddies of mine. One of my favorite characters that I've traveled and paddled with the most is Brad Ludden, uh -huh. who's now, you know, taken charge of First Descent, set that up. Yeah, and, uh, he's from Montana, right? I'm, yeah, he is. That's right. Yeah. yeah, I paddled with someone who was uh, learned from his family when he was yeah. a kid. Yeah, yeah, super character. And so he, he's gone on and set up the, the kayaking uh, camps for kids with cancer. Um, and then there was Tyler Curtis. I've heard that name. Yeah, yeah he yeah. was a former Canadian team member and dirtbag international globetrotting kayaker. Um, which did a bunch in Patagonia with as well, actually. Mm. Um, and Mikey Abbott, people would probably be, probably know. Benno Hort, who sadly passed on from Norway. So we we went out and had a go at this section. And what it turned out to be was another, you know, uh, geographical anomaly like the Zambezi. So really? the Mekong is huge. At that stage, it's very close to the ocean. Mm. Um, you know, you're talking kilometers wide, and you, when you're on the riverbank, you look out towards the river one way, and then you look in the other direction. As far as you can see, there are houses on stilts, so you know the river gets a lot bigger when it's up as well. And anyway, we got to the section called A Thousand Islands, I think it was called, and there's basically a band of rock, like a dam, runs across the river. And to get across it, the river flares to about 10 kilometers and just cuts all these channels through this 10-meter band of rock. And those channels can be three sort of three to six-meter waterfalls, or they can be Zambezi Nile-esque huge pumping volumes or <laughs> channels of, of white water, which are hmm. you know rugged and hard. And they will end in this big pool at the bottom, and you walk back up and do the next one. Um, and the, they all come together in the pool at the bottom, which has pink dolphins in it, just to round off the, That's the so cool. yeah, the, the uniqueness of it. Yeah. Yeah. Sounds extremely unique. Yeah. Was, was it, was the expedition a full success? Was it something that. It was a full success in that we came back with hangovers and we were all alive and we did some <laughs> white water that was super challenging that we'd never seen before. So it worked out pretty well. So at the time when I was doing a lot of this stuff for Iran, for the Mekong, I was making movies on VHS and selling them just to keep the dream alive, you know, as a side hustle to keep traveling. And so that was part of a, a movie that I I put together with a section of the Orinoco in Venezuela. Um, I think we put the baker from the Pasqua in there. Um, hmm. And maybe, maybe yeah, the section from Iran as well. Can you still get those videos or are they out there? You can get them. I can sell them to you. You've just oh. got to get a VHS player. Oh, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> I think, I think a lot part. of stuff's online if you look for it. Okay. People have posted it online. Yeah, yeah. I, I, don't, I don't know that I've really... I think I've seen clips of some of those, but... Certainly not all. Is this an example of something where, you know, you look at this river, like, I did it once, it was cool, or is this something that could be a classic that people should go repeat? To? Well, it, it is a classic 
that people should go and repeat. And I think people do go back and do, they do. it. Um, it's it's a, again a fabulous cultural travel story because you can live on the central islands. There were small backpacking lodges there. We used to get people to, with carts with water buffalo to carry our, our boats across the island back to the lodges. Hmm. Cheap food, cheap beer. I mean, it's 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 a wonderful destination. I, I had a great time there. For me, the rivers that I love that continually draw me back are the big water play rivers like Zambezi and the Futalefu in Chile that I love and adore. Yeah. And to a lesser extent, stuff like the Embudo and California. <laughs> I love that stuff, but not, I'm not as rugged as I used to be. Right, yeah. Is it, why, I was going to say, why do you think that is? Is, it, is, it, is it that the reason it's easier on your body? Yeah, it, it, you know. Pain dwells a little bit longer. <laughs> <laughs> Aches, but, and and I'm focusing on other stuff, you know, trying to trying to keep my my business going, production and photography, uh-huh. and it's been good in the last couple of years. So that's yeah. great to hear. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Are you still traveling a lot for that photography business? Or? Yeah, a lot, yeah. a lot. Um, I work as a, a private videographer, photographer for a, a family that owns quite a lot of. Uh, property in Africa and do a lot of do a lot of conservation work there, um, which has preserved a lot of land and put a lot of endangered species on a much better footing. So I make private videos for them, but I also generate a lot of beautiful wildlife stills for them, which is one of the reasons I do it. Hmm. Um, uh, an old character that I've worked with a lot, John Bowermaster, you would find online googling quite quickly. Um, I did a piece in the Maldives in. October on coral reef restoration Hmm. so a lot of the places are beginning to actually cement and plant hybridized coral where it's been bleached in the hope that they can regenerate the reefs so we did a documentary on that Um, and then I have another character who I filmed going into the Marianas Trench two years ago Um, and he's decided he likes jumping out of uh, custom-made balloons at 35,000 feet so I've been filming him doing that kind of nonsense wow yeah well that sounds like a great way to make some money and keep the adventure alive in your life that sounds like an interesting gig yep and I've just made uh, volunteer ski patrol at Copper, so a different direction again. <laughs> no shortages of things to do in the world, I guess, no, for you. No, for sure. Yeah. What would you, uh, so out of all these, all these decades of paddling, what would, what, what, if you were stuck in one place, where would it be? Oh, Zambezi. It is. Happiest time of my life. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. Mind-boggling on so many levels. Um, I mean, the river, because it's changing all the time, because it does what? I love and need, which is challenging white water, but also super play features everywhere. Nothing like a big wave for me. I just love that. It just does it for me. But also working amongst this very, very diverse group of characters. So, you know, people drawn from all over the world with this common interest again. Not all kayakers, but just a a love of the river, a love of life. And life was pretty good then. I always hear people getting sick out there is that is that a factor at all or do you have all the you have all the antibodies that you need in your body now for to handle that river uh, yeah i think bacteria get sick when they come onto me so <laughs> um yeah I, I think you get used to it it's it's not a dirty river i mean you're you're, yeah. you're you're more likely to have gi issues in himalayas than you are on this river for sure yeah i think and someone told me it was maybe more just the eating and and the sanitary stuff outside of the river but yeah, I think it's just a, that's just a function of travel experience, yeah. right? Learning to recognize what to eat and just 
letting your stomach toughen up a little bit. Yeah. So in your mind, it's not much different than just traveling anywhere. Not at all. Not <laughs> at all. Interesting. Uh, fabulous culture as well. Again, Zimbabwe, awesome people. <laughs> yeah. What's the uh, most difficult thing you've ever done kayaking? Not not in terms of hard whitewater per se, but just the experience itself, the challenge. Ooh, that's a really good question. I imagine some falls was up there in terms of trying to hold it together because it was quite, I found that quite high pressure. You know, the white water you can manage pretty well, but the the wildlife is a real random that you can't manage. Um, walking to the Kings is that's pretty epic. <laughs> um, yeah, maybe it'd think. be easier with shoes. I don't know. Yeah, well. <laughs> It doesn't make it any shorter. No, it doesn't. <laughs> still same length. Still got to get up 3,000 feet to 12,000 foot pass and come back down again. So, yeah, you got to use, it, use your legs for that. Uh, I'm not sure. I'm, I'm really not sure. I mean, I've just been very blessed. I've managed to see a tremendous amount of the world from my kayak and through my kayak. Um, and I've stayed safe so far. Yeah, that's fantastic. What, yeah. what about... What would be your your worst your the close call that was the closest call? Mm. Maybe in a hot tub and yeah, that, <laughs> yeah. Maybe my closest call was the fact that I I might at one stage have had to have given Rolf mouth to mouth. I mean that that is beyond thinking about. <laughs> I don't know. He's a decent looking guy. Huh? <laughs> yeah. I wouldn't be first in the line for that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, seriously. Have you, have you had any close calls on the Yeah, of course. Yeah. Of course. It's the nature of kayaking. Yeah. Um, uh, had a little run in with the rapid on the Zambezi once where I was held under uh, in rocks for a little while and it was kind of a, a, a close run thing. I don't talk about that too much, but I think. You know, we, we lose paddlers and we've got to remember that it is real and we've got to remember why we're doing it and that, you know, the excitement of one class five is not worth all the other class fours that we would run for the rest of our life and all the me people that we would meet doing that. And it's very tempting when you're young to put that stuff first and I've done it for sure. I just hope that everybody gets this opportunity to get their ass kicked really hard, but to walk away from it so they can understand it. Yeah. Yeah. Learn the lesson. Yeah. Without it. yeah. When it goes wrong, the river doesn't stop. Yeah. What would be your, what would be your advice to someone that hears kind of about your, your decades of paddling and your adventures and all the places you've been and, you know, maybe they're teenagers or 20 years old and they're, they're like, Oh, I want to experience this life. Don't do it. Get a job. Get a life. <laughs> and I can, then I can keep the river to myself. Uh, I mean, if you if if uh, if you know anything about kayaking and this lights a fire in your soul, follow your heart. How would you um, How would you advise people to make it a life? Make it sustainable. Put it that way. Ooh. See, I'm a kayaker, not an economic advisor. Mm. But, um, is it Bitcoin? Is that the answer? Yeah, <laughs> that's right. And that's why you should invest it. No. Um, uh, I mean, it, it evolves all the time. So the job that I had on the Zambezi uh, video kayak doesn't really exist or certainly doesn't exist for foreigners anymore. Um, I, 
I don't know that. I, I think the answer is that everybody's journey is different and you have to follow your nose and follow your heart and, and research and speak to people, find out what's going on. Yeah, the opportunities unfold as you experience it. Huh? Yeah. 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 Um, practice on being competent where you can first. Yeah, I'm not, yeah, I don't have a great answer for that one, okay. I'm afraid, you know. That's fair. Yeah. That's fair. All right, well, thanks, Alex. Hey, my pleasure. Yeah, my any, pleasure. Any, any parting thoughts? Um, not really, no. Um, if, you're, if you're looking for photos to put on your bathroom wall, alexnicks.com is a great place to get fine art photography, I've heard. Um, otherwise, uh, I'm really grateful to have been able to share some of these experiences with you. I feel you know, humbled to have seen what I've done. Um, uh, I'm, I'm really grateful to have seen that. It was my passion when, when I was younger. And if somebody had told me I'd have done as much as I have kayaking, I wouldn't have believed them. But there's a lot of time out there. So take it, take it sensibly, take it cautiously, and go and, go and enjoy and explore. Mm -hmm.